12. Jack. The roads are as dry as a bone at present, so that won't work. Little stupid. Little stupid side again. If only I knew how to earn an honest penny. He murmured. Or tuppence. Said Hilda. I think tuppence would be a little better. I would rather it was half a crown. Put in Nellie. There was silence for a moment. Then Jack said slowly, I wonder what became of Uncle Harry after he went out to Australia. Father never writes to him. He doesn't know where he is now. And we have moved so many times that I expect Uncle does not know where we are either. I dare say if he knew we were so badly off he would help us. It's no good talking about Uncle Harry, said Jeff. The question is, can we help father? Look here, cried Jack. Suddenly, supposing, instead of saying, can we, we say, we must. Supposing, he added, we all make up our minds to earn a shilling each as best we can, so that we may have four shillings to buy father some slippers. Capital, exclaimed Nell, but how are we to earn it? Oh. We must each hit upon a plan for ourselves. Return Jack, I vote we draw lots for the first victim tonight. And we will allow each victim today to earn the shilling in and then we'll draw for the next. Of course, they all began to puzzle their young brains about plans, but Jack cut some slips of paper into different lengths. And, placing them between his thumb and first finger, while he clasped his other fingers tightly over the ends inside his hand, he bade them each take one and whoever drew the longest was to earn the first shilling. Well, they all drew, and Jack took the slip which was left, but Nellie got the longest, and she retired to the window, and stared out for inspiration. I know what I shall do, she announced. At last, I'll cut my twelve chrysanthemums out of my garden, take them down to town, and sell them in the street for a penny each. Nellie, cried Jack, you mustn't think of doing such a thing. Father would not like it and I am sure we should not. You are not half strong enough to go out into the streets. But Nell was firm. It's the only thing I can think of, Jack. She replied, and I will do it. We must earn some money somehow, and no one will recognize me if I put on my old frock, and a shawl over my head. We can't help being poor, Jack. And it is an honest way of earning a shilling, Jack. However, looked a little worried. He admired Nellie's pluck. But he did not like the thought of her going out into the streets alone. Nevertheless, after some discussion, it was decided that she should have her way, on condition that Jack went with her to see that she was quite safe. It was agreed that the matter should be kept dark, and that if Mother asked where Jack and Nellie had gone next evening, the others were to say it was a secret. So, after tea the following day, the two children stole out. Mother was resting in her own room and Jeffrey and Hilda were at their lessons, though it must be confessed they found it hard to give their whole attention to them. It was a good mile and a half down to the town, but Nellie trudged bravely on with her treasured chrysanthemums she alone knew what it cost her to cut them, and Jack walked a little behind, for his sister said that flower girls never had anyone to escort them, and he must not let anyone see he belonged to her. When they arrived in town, Nellie took up her station at a busy corner, and timidly offered her flowers for sale, while her brother stood in a doorway not far off, pretending to read a book by the light of a street lamp, but in reality he was watching to see that she came to no harm, one honest penny was earned too, then Nell grew bolder, and ran after a man whom she thought a likely customer, but he pushed her roughly on one side, and she fell upon the pavement, Jack could have kicked that man, but he was out of sight in an instant, 
So the boy went and helped Nellie to rise instead, gathering up her flowers. He entreated her to return home, and not to trouble any more. But the little girl bravely held out, assured him she was not hurt, and in the end persuaded him to go back to his doorway. Ten minutes passed away without any more flowers being sold. Then Nellie held out the best of all to a kind-looking gentleman who was passing slowly by. He stopped, looked at the child somewhat curiously, and then said, Mumber little lass, I do not want any flowers, but I wonder if you can tell me where Greenfield Road Island is. Eh? Nellie started, for that was the name of the road where she lived. However, she simply directed him, and was turning away to seek for another customer when he slipped a bright half-crown into her hand. The child was so astonished that for the moment she could say nothing, and when she recollected herself the gentleman had gone, and Jack was by her side, asking what had happened. Well, he said, when she had told him, no more selling flowers tonight, no, so you can just come home at once, for you have done your part and more, and he would not hear of her staying there any longer. Together the two started for home, feeling very happy indeed. But scarcely had they got inside the door when Jeffrey literally rushed at them. Oh, Jack, Nellie, he cried, you can't think what a splendid thing has happened. Who do you think turned up ten minutes ago? Uncle Harry, yes, Uncle Harry, he has been hunting for us for days. Oh, it seems too good to be true. He's in the dining room now, with father, and oh, is he, said a voice from behind and who should appear on the scene but the kind gentleman who had given Nell half a crown. Why? he exclaimed. Suddenly, what's this I see? Well, if it isn't why, what does it all mean? he asked, turning round to father, who had followed him out, and was looking equally puzzled. There was an awkward silence. Nellie colored, and in her nervousness, down went all her pretty flowers onto the floor. But Jack came to the rescue and blurted out the whole story on the spot. Father turned his head away as Jack explained, indeed, he was much touched by the children's thoughtfulness, but Uncle Harry patted Nell's head, and praised her for her pluck. He said that father ought to be proud of his four children, and I am sure father was, though he said they must never think of going into the streets to sell flowers again. Of course, the earning an honest penny business came to an end, for Uncle Harry had come back much better off than when he went out to Australia, and he gave the children a shilling each to buy father some slippers, and something else for themselves besides. Later on, he and father became partners in a business of their own, and Nellie never had to think of selling her flowers again, or Jeffrey of sweeping a crossing. J.A. Vivian, Ginger for pluck, Thomas and had blue eyes, a mop of red hair, a moderate share of brains and a most insatiable thirst for adventure. When his schoolfellows made insulting remarks about his red locks, he was one to answer, Ginger for pluck, and, indeed, on several occasions, he had acted up to this saying there and then on the persons of his unfortunate persecutors. Tommy was only eleven years old. Mrs. McCormont, his mother, regarded him as the most wonderful boy in the world, and would have utterly spoiled him. After the fashion of adoring mothers, had it not been that Mr. McCormont, seeing nothing more wonderful in his son than a red-headed, mischievous boy, set himself most diligently to curb Tom's youthful energy, and make an honest, sensible fellow of him. They lived in the country, and Tom had three miles to go to his school, but Mr. McCormont also had business in Barton, 
So the pair set out together each morning in a trap drawn by a steady-going horse, who never shied or ran away, or did anything at all exciting. Tom was set down at the door of his school at nine o'clock, and called for at half-past four precisely, just like a grocery parcel. Never a chance for a frolic over the fields in the clear morning air. Never any scrapes to get into. No gentle dawdles through the lanes after school, with occasional excursions into hedge or spinny after wild creatures, or the chance of a nice creepy adventure in the darkness of some winter's evening. The whole business, Tom thought, was humdrum and commonplace. But at last, one early springtime, it happened that Mr. McCormont had urgent business at the town of Greenhurst, 20 miles away. It was a cross-country journey, where railways did not fit. So Mr. McCormont departed in his trap, leaving Tom and his mother in sole possession for a whole fortnight at Red House. Mrs. McCormont was secretly rather glad to be able to spoil her son as she liked. Tom made the most of his advantages and mother and son together reveled in the glorious sense of doing everything they liked best. Tom's favorite dishes appeared at every meal. Bedtime came a good hour later than usual, and Tom also managed three clear days old soldiering on the strength of a slight cold. But the last morning of liberty came, and as Tom dressed he carefully turned over in his mind how he should celebrate it. It was a beautiful morning after a week of heavy rain, and Tom had no wish for another day of coddling indoors. Tom's mother packed his lunch case with many dainties, and kissed him goodbye. Tom felt rather mean, like a wriggle upwarder as he afterwards put it, and he half resolved to give up his plan and go soberly to school, for, to tell the truth, he had already resolved to play truant, and happily, as he turned into the lane from the drive gates, a rabbit dashed across the road right in front of him, and frisked into the hedge in a most tantalizing manner as if to show his contempt for stupid human beings who plod along the beaten track, that killed all Tom's scruples, and he was soon scurrying through the fields, scrambling over hedges, leaping ditches, and getting his clothes into as pretty a pickle as could be desired, what a splendid day he spent, following no settled route, but wandering here and there as the impulse of the moment directed, and feeling in all his boyish frame the gladness of life and of spring, he lunched in a little wood, with a fallen tree for a throne, and a rippling stream to play him music while he feasted, then he sauntered leisurely on in the afternoon sunlight, many thoughts busy beneath his comical red thatch, the long hours in the open after his three days indoors made him sleepy at last, and he was glad to discover behind the temporary abode of a railway navvy a little roughwood hut, where, with a friendly dog for company, and some straw for a couch, he was soon fast asleep, Tom was dreaming, he heard a babel of voices fierce and angry, and was striving very hard to hear what they were saying, but, though the voices seemed loud, he could not distinguish one word from another, and in trying to do so he awoke. The voices continued, but they were not loud at all, though rough and angry, they came from the navvy shelter, and Tom could hear plainly every word. He was about to move away when he heard his father's name mentioned, qualified with expressions of hatred. Plainly it was right that he should hear what these men had to say about his father. So Tom crouched nearer the wall of the hut and listened. His blue eyes grew big and round, and his face filled with horror. Tom knew that the navvies at work in the district were not regular workmen, but a very rough set. A gang of them had been almost a terror to the neighborhood, and Tom's father had been foremost in bringing the guilty ones to justice. Three of their friends were in the hut, one with a revolver 
they had learned from a workman that Mr. McCormon was to return from Greenhurst that evening, and they were discussing the spot where they could best waylay and shoot him. We won't kill him, only damage him a bit. Were the last words Tom heard as he crept from his hiding place and made his way quietly into the wood. Tom's fear began to give way to excitement. He had an adventure at last, and all to himself. To go home for help would be no use and would only terrify his mother. The setting sun showed that the evening was advancing, and his father would soon be coming, so that the only thing was to go and hide near the spot where the men had planned to wait. This was where two roads merged into one. At the bottom of a steep hill overhung with trees, Mr. Mcarmont might come by either of the two roads it would depend on whether he wished to go into Barton or not. Tom made his way to his post as quickly as possible, and found himself the hiding place in a hole beneath the hedge, where only a boy could wriggle, and where he hoped that in the dusk he would be unobserved. His post was just the point where the road forked, the men had planned to stand some yards from that point, where it was more shaded by trees. So Tom hoped that when he heard the trap approaching, and could distinguish on which road it was, he would have time to run and warn his father, who would then, he did not doubt, with the aid of his valiant son, be a match for any three men. It was rather a lonely watch. Tom was getting hungry again and very tired and stiff. As the light faded, his excitement faded too, and it was almost a relief to hear the stealthy arrival of the conspirators. Then another long wait until at last he heard the cartwheels going over and rolled stones, which told that it was not on the Barton Road. Out of his hiding place he crept, and darted along the grass at the roadside, and a lucky stumble over a fallen branch betrayed him. But as he fell he shouted with all his might, Look out, father, they are going to shoot you. Then there was a rush, a crack as something came into violent contact with his head. The world went round, and then darkness, when Tom woke. The morning sun was shining into his own room. His mother was busy at the window, fixing the curtain to keep the light from his face. And Tom could see that she was crying. A great fear entered his mind. And, as his mother turned and looked at him, all he could say was father, quite safe. My brave laddie, for you frightened the men away. My dear, brave boy. Then joy filled the heart of Thomas and Comment, And for once the fault of playing truant went and punished. Jesse Harvey. Growing up, when birthdays come, we always write our names upon the nursery door, and carefully we mark the height, each standing shoeless on the floor. How strange to think birthdays will be when we shall never add one more to all those marks which gradually are climbing up the nursery door. Some wonderful caverns, I.V. The grottoes of Han in the Ardennes, a narrow opening high on an oak-covered hill, a cluster of women, girls, and boys each carrying a slight iron bar connecting to oil lamps, a crowd of tourists of many nationalities all waiting to enter the grottoes of Han. Presently the guide arrives, and delivers a brief speech as to the possible consequences should visitors deface or purloin the treasures of the cave, demanding silence during his explanations, and declaring that one light bearer would accompany every four persons. He ceases, and away we go. Down, down, down apparently into the very heart of the earth, through damp and chilly air and profound darkness, broken only by the glimmer of the friendly lamps. Then we cease descending, and emerge in a cavern where the lights are flashed upon thousands of fossilized insects, and on into the hall of the foxes, where countless generations of their species lived, died, and were buried. After this the great caverns succeed each other rapidly, 
each with some special interest of its own, until we find ourselves in the hall of the trophies, where electric light is installed to exhibit the marvels of the roof, a thick fringe of stalactites, many of immense size, descend to meet the columns of stalagmite ascending from the floor, right through the caverns, a distance of nearly two miles, a rough path has been made which is fairly dry and clean, but on either side are rivers and banks of mud, so that it is well to be careful and watch the way. Once as we went along we heard behind us a splashing thud, and, turning, beheld a portly Belgian floundering on his back in the mire, whence he presently emerged, coated with mud, looking rather like a hippopotamus. No rule of silence could avail to stifle the peals of laughter that rang through the grotto, and we had the less scruple in enjoying the fun because any one of us might at any moment have the happiness of similarly amusing his or her fellow creatures. Our merriment ended before the wonders of the Hall of Mystery, where the electric light traveled round to show the mosque. Standing out in glittering points of light, the curtain, a veil of gleaming lacework in stone, and the Alhambra, furnished royally with every combination of diamond-like crystals. It would be easy to invent names for most of the objects, for shrines, pulpits, thrones, and such like are everywhere carved, of dazzling whiteness and richness of design. Next we enter the gloomy magnificence of the Hall of the Dome, where the roof towers up two hundred feet into the darkness. As we ascend the steep path we turn and see below the gleam of water. This is the subterranean river Less. The architect of these gloomy grottos, which until some forty years ago had heard no voice save that of the water hammering and chiseling the rocks at its own sweet will. Legend declares these stately halls to be the palaces of the little brown dwarfs, who, issuing from their homes at night, by counsel and more practical aid enabled the early builders to produce the wonderful edifices of Bruges, Ypres, and other Flemish cities. Still we go on, up and down through grotto after grotto of marvelous beauty, sometimes along the banks of the shadowy river, reflecting in its depths the fairy-like beauties of roof and wall, then up high, narrow ridges or down into the depths of inky blackness, until at last we find ourselves in the hall of embarkation. Here a small wooden platform projects over the river, and near it are a number of large boats capable of carrying all our party. The boats push off, all lights are extinguished, and the sensation of total darkness in such conditions is more weird than pleasant. We are told that the water is of a known depth, and it takes some confidence to repress thoughts of collisions and perils by water of various kinds. The boats move on in solemn procession, and soon a tiny speck of light appears and grows gradually larger and brighter, by degrees the light pervades dimly roof, walls, and transparent water, and then, all in a moment, a flood of glorious sunshine gleams through the lofty portal which we are approaching, behind us fringes and bosses of stalactite are tinged with the warm glow, and stand out in bold relief from the darkness, before us the banks are green with grassy slopes and waving trees, Below us the river dances along in the sunlight as if full of joy at escaping from prison, and we too share its happiness as we float back into our everyday world from the gloomy glories of the grottos of Han, Helena Heath, the boy tramp, continued from page 107, for the next hour I felt extremely miserable, but, remembering that I should, in all probability, see Jason the tomorrow, I began to wish it were possible to do something to improve my appearance for the occasion for not only were my clothes in a far from satisfactory condition, but the sole lace of my boots were full of holes, so that one stocking touched the ground, 
There was nothing to do but wander about and look at the chickens until I was summoned to supper, which consisted of bread and very strong cheese. On being shown to the bedroom, I found that it contained two beds, in one of which a small boy was already reposing. Although he seemed to watch me with considerable curiosity, he made no attempt at conversation, but it was a very noisy house, and I found it impossible to get to sleep for some time. When my room fellow awoke me at about six o'clock the following morning, the sun was shining brightly into the shabby room, so that this promised excellently for the day's tramp. I said my prayers, and having washed, dressed, and partaken of a somewhat scanty breakfast, wondering, as I ate, what had by this time become of Patch, I set out, at a little after half past seven, in the direction of Hazelton, presently, passing through a village, which seemed to be on the outskirts of the town of Hazelton, I bought two penny sausage rolls at a small baker's shop, and asked for a glass of water, as I walked on, eating the rolls, it soon became evident that the town was close at hand, at intervals I passed large houses, standing in their own grounds, and carefully I read the names on their gateposts, lest one should be Colbrut Park, the path, which had been almost indistinguishable from the roadway, was now asphalted, and I stopped to read a notice board concerning vagrants, wondering whether I ought to be reckoned under that denomination, I do not know whether the sun had affected me for it shone with brilliant force that morning or whether I was tired after my ten miles walk without much food, but as I drew near to Hazelton, which I had formerly felt so anxious to reach, my usual spirit seemed to forsake me, and, if it had not been for the necessity to return the locket, I think I should have passed on my way without making the least attempt to see Jason P. again, I seemed to have lost pride in myself, so that it became difficult to keep out much hope, perhaps it might be possible to get the locket safely into Jason P.'s hands without seeing her, especially if there happened to be a lodge at the entrance to Colbrut Park, when I might leave the trinket with the lodge keeper, with the object of making up my mind, I lay down on the wide border of grass on one side of the road, thankful for the shelter of the hedge, it was about half past twelve, and several carriages passed as I lay there, as well as a few bicyclists, but now the straight, wide road was clear, no one was in sight, either to the right or to the left, until, from a gate a hundred yards away, in the direction of the town, a girl on a bicycle came forth, and I knew at once that she must be Jason Th- She wore a wide-brimmed, white straw hat, and a white cotton frock, and was sitting very upright as she turned and coasted on her freewheel machine down the slight hill towards me. For an instant I thought of turning away my face, so that, even if she remembered it, she should not recognize me, but she looked so bright and pleasant an object in the middle of the sunny road that, on the impulse of the moment, I rose to my feet crossed the margin of grass, and lifted the cloth cap which had been given to me before I reached Polemphong. Jacinta was off her machine at once. Why? She cried. You are the boy who ran away. My name is Everard. You know. I answered. But I thought you said you were going to London. She suggested. So I am. It is not the nearest way from where you were to come through Hazelton, said Jacinta. You see. I explained. Thrusting my fingers into my waistcoat pocket, I came to bring back your locket, and I held it out towards her in the palm of my right hand. My locket, she said, gazing at it while she held the handle of her bicycle. Yes, I answered, I found it on the path just by the hedge where you were standing. 
but I did not bring a locket with me from London, she exclaimed, and I felt immensely disappointed, isn't it really yours, then, I asked, of course not, she returned, how can it be if I didn't bring one, and then she removed one hand from the bicycle, and took the locket from my palm, which I wished had not been so extremely grimy, I think it is very pretty, she continued, and I believe it is gold, oh, it is gold right enough, I said, because it has a hallmark, it is 18 carat, have you come out of your way just because you thought it was mine, she asked, giving me back the trinket, it was not very far, I persisted, rather nice of you, though, said Jacinta, if it comes to that, I answered, you were a rather nice to me that day, some girls would have given me away, and then I should have been back at Ascot House before now, as I was speaking, she took a small gold watch from her pocket, I must not be late, she cried, because both Dick and I were late for breakfast, who is Dick, I asked, as she put away her watch, Dick is my brother, Jason the explained, he only came down yesterday, Dick's a year older than I am, I really ought to go, she added, if my uncle were to see me talking to you he mightn't like it, I suppose, I cried a little angrily, he would think I was begging, at all events, said Jason, candidly, he would be rather surprised, you know, because you do look most tremendously dirty just as if you were a regular tramp and yet your face would be all right if it were only washed and you had your hair properly cut, I felt that my cheeks were growing red, and for the moment I was tempted to make an angry retort, although, remembering what I owed to Jason, I simply held out my hand and muttered goodbye, oh, you mustn't go on yet, she exclaimed, I want to hear all you've been doing, I must go in now, but please promise to wait till I come out again, I won't be long, I am not in a hurry, I admitted, only don't stay here, she said, wait till I am out of sight, and then follow me until you come to our hedge, right in the corner you will find a place you can get through, and nobody ever comes to that field, you get through the hedge and stay till I come back, chapter XIV. I stood in the road while Jason mounted her bicycle and rode up the slight hill to the gate. When she looked back and waved her hand as she turned into the grounds, having waited a few minutes, I followed her directions, found the weak spot in the hedge, scrambled through, and at once sat down on the grass. I saw I was in a remote corner of a large field, in which a few Jersey cows were grazing, but this was not quite an ordinary field as it contained a good many foreign trees with iron railings round them. It was more like a park. In the middle stood a small mound, looking as if it had been made artificially, with a kind of arbor on the top overgrown with some sort of creeper and shut in by trees. The time seemed to pass very slowly, but at last I saw the flash of Jacintha's white dress in the sunshine as she walked rapidly towards my corner, the house not being visible from where I sat. To my vexation, however, she was not alone. A few yards behind came a boy of about my own age and size, with a straw hat on the back of his head, a red and blue blazer thrown over his white cricket shirt, and his hands thrust in the pockets of his flannel trousers, while Jason the tripped quickly over the grass. Her companion, who, no doubt, was her brother, seemed to follow far less cheerfully. I could not help thinking there was something unwilling, almost resentful, in his manner so that I felt prepared to pay him back in his own coin, although I might look as dirty and as much like a tramp as Jason the had suggested, I was not going to stand any nonsense, 
When they reached the arbor they came to a standstill and seemed to be holding an argument, until, a few minutes later, Jacintha tossed back her long hair and set forth at a run in my direction, whereupon I went to meet her. You didn't mind my bringing Dick, she suggested, looking doubtfully into my face. Have you told him, then? I asked. I told him yesterday, she said. I mean I told him about seeing you in the wheat field, and you're running away from school, and when I just had time to whisper that I had met you before lunch, he said I must not come, but I told him I had promised, and then he said he would come too. By this time we were within a few feet of Dick, who looked all right, although he seemed to think a great deal of himself. He was there, like Jason the and he did not take his hands out of his pockets, so I put my hands into my pockets also, and stared at him as hard as he stared at me. Dick, cried Jason, this is Everard. Well, look here, he answered, if you don't want to be collared, you had better come in instead of standing out here all day. Continued on page 125, Cuban lizards. The Cuban anoles is one of a large family of lizards all of which are confined to America and the West Indian Islands. This family is nearly related to that of the iguanas, but whereas some of the iguanas attain a length of five or six feet, the anoles is always small. It is a remarkably active little creature, and often singularly beautiful, offering a striking contrast to the ugly and sluggish horned lizards of North America and Mexico. It is usually rather more than a foot long, and its general color is a beautiful green. It has a white throat and a white band passing over each shoulder and for some distance along each side. The little creature has the power of puffing out its throat, and distending it till it looks like a ball upon its neck. When it is irritated, angry, or alarmed, it invariably blows out its throat in this way, and tries to frighten its enemy by this means. Most of these lizards have also more or less power of changing their color, like the chameleon, and, indeed, a few of them can outrival the chameleon in this respect. A striking peculiarity of this lizard is the structure of its toes. They are rather long, and furnished with sharp hooked claws, and the last joint is swollen out into a kind of pad. At first sight we should be inclined to think that these little swellings near the tips of the toes would be rather an inconvenience to the anoles, by impeding its movements. But a closer examination shows that these curious growths have a use. They act to some extent as suckers and enable the anoles to climb the perpendicular faces of rocks, or even to hang from the underside of a branch. The males of these little lizards are often very quarrelsome, especially at certain times of the year, when two of them rarely meet without having a fight. They fly at each other furiously, rolling over and over, and biting savagely. These fierce battles generally end in one of the combatants losing his tail, for in these lizards, as in many others, the tail is not very strongly attached to the body. The victor sometimes makes off with the tail of his foe in his mouth, and sometimes he even devours it. The loss of his tail is a great blow to the vanquished anoles, for he seems to have a great pride in it. When he is deprived of it, he accepts defeat at once, and though he recovers from the injury without much trouble, he is generally but a timid and crestfallen creature afterwards. He seems to look upon the loss of his tail as a disgrace very,